Listen to the word of the Lord. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience in teaching. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience in teaching. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. So last time, if you recall, we spent all the message talking about the idea of in season and out of season. The idea that there, were, that there are cultural seasons, seasons where our broader culture in which we live is either more open or less open to the message. And of course, the exhortation is it doesn't matter if they're open or closed, you have work to do. So cultural seasons, social seasons, where you're investing in people's life, so you're sowing seeds, you're watering seeds, and sometimes even harvesting, but what you're doing is depending on the season of the person, right? And then I said there are cultural seasons, social seasons, and personal seasons, that in your, in your own life, you'll go through seasons and you can't just plod along and not pay attention to your soul. You have to tailor your faithfulness to the season you're in. Just like you tailor your message to the culture you're in, never, never harming the content of Jesus, but always adapting the approach for how you're communicating to the culture. You, you change your methods, but never your message. Are you with me? A good missionary changes their methods in order to be faithful to the message. So, cultural, social, and personal seasons. And I ended by telling you to pay attention to your soul. Don't just ignore your soul. There are seasons when the pace, what you do, and the pace of what you do has to change. You're able to take on a greater load, and there's an urgency, and there's a kairos. Do you know, are you familiar with the difference between kairos and chronos? Okay, two Greek words, and they both are translated time. Kronos, though, is just time on the clock. What time it happens to be. What time is it right now? 11.26. Time to listen to Tim. Okay, that's actually a good example. The Kronos time is 11.26. The Kairos time is it's time to open your heart to the Word of God. Kairos is an appointed time. Kronos is just chronological passing of moments. And so there are times and seasons in your life. It's not all just the passing of years. Oh, I happen to be, this is this year, this is, you know, I'm 40, what am I, almost 43? I can't remember how old I am. Once you get over 21, does it matter? You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> it's a blur. After you're 16, it's a big blur. You know, I'm like, oh my goodness, I can't believe it. I can't wait till I'm 16, I can drive. And then and time goes so slow. Those first 16 years took 40 years. The next 10 took two minutes, it feels like sometimes. Anyway, yeah, for if you're a little kid, like those last two weeks of school before summer break, oh my word. Yeah, okay. Kairos says it's an appointed time. And there are seasons in your life where what is in front of you in terms of divine destiny is such that it's time for, I hate the phrase, all hands on deck. I really do. I've gotten tired of it because it used to be that, you know, 
Seven out of 10 church emails started with all hands on deck. And I was like, not again. I can't be urgent all the time. Give me like one of those every five years. Not, not, you know what I mean? All hands on deck. <sighs> not helpful. But there are seasons like that in your life where it's harvest time, where, where what the Lord's called you to has an activity, a specific strategic activity that now's the window. Get it now. Go now. It's harvest time. If you leave the fruit on the tree, it'll be rotting on the ground covered in wasps and bees in a week or two. Do you understand what I'm talking about? Because harvest time means go time and, and all of your effort and energy and sleep. You'll sleep later once the harvest is done. And then there are seasons where if you keep that pace going, it's going to harm you. Life's not a sprint, but there are moments in life where you have to sprint. Are you hearing what I'm saying? And so I, I ended last week by telling you to pay attention to your soul. Pay attention to your soul. Don't just plod along and keep doing what used to work or what you used to do. Pay attention to your soul and keep your heart in the love of God. Sometimes plodding along and doing what I used to do, even in like little things that seem like so obvious, like reading my Bible and praying, sometimes if I don't pay attention to my soul, I'll just start, it'll, it'll become routine and I'll lose relationship. The goal of your discipline is always relationship, not to say, okay, I did it, right? So saying your prayers, for example, can be good if saying your prayers leads into actually praying your prayers. Do you know the difference between saying your prayers and praying your prayers? One's a conversation with a real person in the room, and one of them is like leaving God a voicemail. Oh, this is what I always say. I always start my prayers by saying, thank you, God, for this, and thank you, God, for that, and then I quote these three verses, and then I do this thing. Okay, that's okay for a season to get your heart in a particular posture, but that's going to go stale after a minute, and you're going to want to revise that by paying attention to your soul and making adjustments. The goal is to be in touch not just with principles, because Christians are not to be led by biblical principles as much as we are led by the presence of God. Are you with me? And I didn't say it's less than principles. I, I'm saying it's more than. We're not, we're not undisciplined, but we have delight and relationship we're going after, which is the point of our discipline. To say, oh, no discipline required, no duty required would be foolishness. And a lot of people think that. They go, they discover grace and they go, to heck with duty, to heck with, with discipline. I just, I'm under grace. And I go, Phew. okay, so it's, any relationship requires you doing hard, right things to keep the relationship fresh, right? But if all it is is doing hard, right things and there's no delight in it, something's gone horribly wrong, right? Okay. Pay attention to your soul. There's a, there's a word in the Old Testament, 1 Chronicles 12.32, a little, just a little verse that is so fascinating, fa fascinating to me. 1 Chronicles 12.32, it says, the, the sons of Issachar, some of you will know this immediately as, I, as soon as I start saying this. Now, the sons of Issachar were men who had understanding of the times and knew what Israel ought to do. Understanding of the times and knew what Israel ought to do. Fascinating. And that's what this word about in season and out of season, to me, is about. 
It's about recognizing the season that, that, that I'm in culturally, socially with particular people and personally and knowing, okay, how do I best spend my precious brief time right now? Time is your most limited, most valuable, um, give me their next word for that. Thank you, resource, appreciate that. Money's replaceable, time is not. Stuff's replaceable, time is not. Time is ticking along. Oh no, am I gonna start quoting song lyrics? Yeah, don't do it, Tim. I was gonna wanna start singing some Pink Floyd and then some uh, DC Talk and some... Uh... Yeah. <laughs> yep. Time. Adjust your strategy and pace to the season, to the kairos of the moment you're in. Okay. Then, okay, let's move on to the rest of the verse. He says, all this stuff, be ready in season, out of season, all, all the time ministering the word to people. All the time ministering the word. Then he says, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Let's look at those words real quick. The word reprove comes from the, it's a translation of the Greek word elegko, which means to show someone that they've done wrong and to call them to repent. Did you know that's part of our, our, our work? I, I think sometimes modern gospel ministry, we have, we have limited our approach to preaching and teaching the word to encouragement. And that's not going to be faithful. We have to elegco. We have to show someone how they've done wrong and call them to repent. It's to bring to light. It's to expose. It can also mean to cross-examine and to disprove or to bring convincing proof. It's to lay the truth out in such a way that I am seen in light of what the word exposes. The next word is translated rebuke. Epitimao, which is to strictly appraise someone, to warn someone, to charge someone as blamable, or to express strong disapproval. That's fascinating. To rebuke so as to curb someone's sin. To admonish. Most literally, epitimao, epi meaning uh, to call or to, to uh, upon, and timao, to call up. So most literally, it means to call them to rise up and live with honor. There was a conversation happening at the college cafeteria when Carrie was at Cedarville. Carrie's sitting here. Over here, two dudes are having a conversation. And one of them says something off color. And this other guy who was just listening, wasn't in the conversation, he interjected, brother, be above reproach. It wasn't his conversation. But he knows these people claim to be Christians. And this guy just said something a Christian ought not say. And rather than let it slide and just wince, 
He did the loving thing and put his foot, excuse me, no, that's not how it called. That's not what we're, that's not what we're doing. We're not doing, that's, be above reproach. And that interaction, my wife, she was two steps removed. She, she looked at that and it changed her life. Someone rebuking someone else who they weren't even in conversation with changed my wife's life. She said, whoa, that's what it is. That's love. That's what love looks like right there. Epitemao, to call someone to rise up and live with honor, to admonish someone's vice. I, I used to use stronger, bad language than I do now. If you know me, you know I've changed significantly over the past few years. One lady came to me and simply said, no, don't, don't use words like that. And I had all the arguments for why it was okay for a Christian to use words like that. Well, look at Ezekiel. He uses stronger language than me. Look at Paul. He uses way stronger words than me. Look at Jesus. He called his, enemy, his enemies, his critics, this, this, and this. That's way stronger words than, than I'm using. Now, here's one thing you got to know about, about humans. When you rebuke someone, their first reaction is not their last reaction. Sometimes we go, I, I brought a word of correction and they didn't listen to me. Whoa, 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 whoa. You did your job. Now you leave them in Holy Spirit's hands and trust that the gentle whisper, because it says a gentle word can change the heart of a king. A whisper can break a bone and a gentle word, just a, just a quiet, gentle word can turn the heart of the king. You don't have to yell. You don't have to convince them. You don't have to get them to agree with you in the moment. In fact, all that stuff's just manipulation and shenanigans. If you need them to agree with you, now you're manipulative. Put it out and then walk away knowing that if it was of God, the Holy Spirit's going to take those gentle, subtle, little, brief words and cause them to dig in and make a, do, a, do things. I'm the guy who says to your face all the reasons I disagree with you when you confront me. And then I go home and I process it deeply and change my life. Even if I disagree with you, I'm likely to change my life to take good care of your heart. Even if I disagree with you about the theology of it. And I'm probably not the only person like that. But one thing I won't do if you bring a, a word of critique or criticism to me is ignore it. I would never do that. In fact, I'm incapable of it to a, to a fault. So you need to know, not only is this our responsibility to call each other up to the standard of holiness, to walk this faith out with integrity, but people's first response is not usually their last response. Don't be discouraged if the first reaction is a negative reaction. Just chill. God the Holy Spirit is now getting loud. The quieter you get is another way to put it. The louder he gets. I used to try to win the argument with my wife and the Lord was like, Tim, I can't work if you're going to work. Like, I'll work or you'll work, but get out of the lane. If you're in that lane, I can't help. You know, you just act like a fool and take away all my ability to convict her because now when she says he's just being a butt, you're, she's right. I can't convict her when you act that way. Get out of the way. Okay, parakaleo is the third word. So reprove to show the truth that exposes Epitemao, rebuke, which is to call up to live an honorable life. And parakaleo, now this one is beautiful. Parakaleo means to come alongside and call to them. It's like a, there's a, there's a 
There's an aching heart of love that's saying, come on, come on, let's go, come on. You're made for more than this, come on. Receive this love, would you come on, come on. That's, that's parakaleo, we, we, we render it exhort. Literally, it means to summon, to invite, to call, earnestly urge, to implore. Even, it even takes on the connotation of begging, begging. I'm begging you. This is what Paul says, don't you remember how I lived among you guys? How from house to house and publicly with tears, I gave you all the word of God that I could possibly give you and I didn't shrink back from telling you anything and I pleaded with you to live lives worthy of the kingdom and be willing to suffer because it's through many hardships that we must go in order to inherit the kingdom. Don't you remember? With tears, what is that? That's almost begging. That's parakaleo. That's calling. That's exhorting. It also, so if, if the audience if the audience is headed the wrong way, it, it's, it's pleading with them to come back. But if the audience is under deep grief, then it actually carries the, the feeling of comfort and encouragement. I love that. The context changes the meaning of, how the, of how the, what the word is. And then he adds, with complete patience. So we're exposing the truth, which is revealing the wrong. We're calling people up to walk this thing out with integrity. We're begging and we're pleading with them to get this thing down deep and to walk it out. And those proclaiming are to do it with complete patience in teaching. I said it two times. I don't understand why they don't get it. Complete patience in teaching. I said it last time. It is so much easier to complain about what's in your metron. Each of us has a metron. A metron is a God-given area of responsibility. The environment around me that I am responsible for. I'm not responsible for the whole planet. I'm not. I am responsible for a particular metron and there's favor grace for me to be faithful in that metron. But it is so much easier to complain, to just grumble and complain and resent the state of my metron so much easier than it is to man up or woman up and take responsibility for what I'm doing to cultivate my metron. And this, this is what it looks like. This, this verse, exhorting, rebuking, encouraging, pleading, continuing to sow and invest in with great patience in constantly continuing to unpack yet again what we unpacked over and over until the time comes, when the harvest comes. And this kind of patience requires love, y'all. Love is patient. If I lack patience, I lack love. I guess that reveals that Tim Miller needs more love. It is so much easier to grumble, complain, sit down, quit, walk away than it is to press in and give it another go. Haven't we been all through over this before? I said this 40 times. Okay, maybe they learn different. Maybe they're not ready to learn. 
That's the thing. People all require patience. You require patience. The Lord is patient with you, and that's why you're still here. You live by the Lord's patience. Everybody requires patience. We don't all get it, whatever it is, right away. Some of us think we're ready to change, but we're actually very selective in our surrender to God, and he's patient with us in ways we have no clue about. No clue. We don't even know he's being patient with us because we have no clue about how selective our surrender is. We think we're full. Others of us have been taught wrong. And so we're living out of wrong training, wrong believing, wrong attitudes, wrong systems about what is, it, what is it to be a woman? What is it to be a man? What is it to be a husband? What is it to be a wife, a son, a daughter? What, whatever it is. Sometimes we've learned the wrong thing about what life is about. We're living out of such fundamental lies we don't even know. We don't even have a clue how patient the Lord's being with us. We think, I'm doing okay, these other people stink. So some of us think we're ready to change, but we're only selective. Others of us have been taught wrong. So the, the process we're in is the Lord's unlearning us. Because some things you can't take in until you make space. I can't, I, can't, I, I know it's an American value of always more. Always more, always more. But the Lord believes in addition by subtraction. Sometimes less is more. Sometimes the, if you get a group of people together to brainstorm to make anything better, I doubt many people will, will propose the idea of removing things. How can we make this house better? I've never seen anyone pay good money to have stuff removed from their house because that lowers the square footage usually and therefore the value. Addition is an American idea, and it's psychologically very satisfying to add stuff, more stuff. If you give people a schedule, and I, this was done, this guy ran a test, he gave people an overly swamped schedule for a vacation in Washington, D.C., and it was humorously overpacked. We're going to go see this, we're going to see the, the Lincoln Memorial, and then we're going to go down there, and we're going to see this, and we're going to go there. He intentionally made the schedule so packed that there's no way you could literally commute from point A to point B within the allotted time. And then he said, they all laughed, oh my word. That's exhausting. The morning has four activities. The afternoon has three. The evening has four. What? That's funny. When are we going to eat? How could we? He said, all right, what, what would you like to change? Most people knew that was too much. Do you know what they did? They added more. You get a group of people together and they brainstorm. How many of you are brainstorming for Gateway? You would think about things to remove. Our lawmakers do the same thing. When they make laws, laws grow more and more and more and more and more. There's so many dang laws on the books, many of which are not even up like, inf what's the word? Enforced anymore. Abraham Lincoln said, the best way to get a bad law repealed is to strictly uh, enforce it. I like that. God's trying to take things from us that we should never have, to make space in our hearts and life. There are things that we need to unlearn. Sometimes the things we unlearn are just as powerful in helping us know God and walk with God than the things we learn. Serious. Okay. The most fun for teachers 
is when the students are genuinely interested and eager to learn, and when they go away from your presence on their own, they're going after the stuff. Those are the kind of students that teacher, teachers go, what in the world? My life is awesome. The hardest students are the ones that seem not to care, don't remember, don't try. And once you're done putting pressure on them, then they definitely do nothing. They only study when you make them or threaten them with punishments of bad grades or something like that. But even eager, aggressive, hungry learners sometimes get stuck and hit snags. We all require patience. And this kind of patience is not passive. It's not waiting in line. Most of the patience in the New Testament is not passive. Those that wait on the Lord will renew their strength. And we go, what does that mean? Waiting in the Lord. Is that like waiting at the pharmacy? I hope not. (laughs) Waiting on the Lord means consistently continuing to actively serve the Lord. Even though the outcome of his response is still forthcoming. A, a, a solid value to, to keep always with us is the, is the core value of constantly seeking God. Constantly seeking God. Always pressing in for more. Waiting on the Lord means continuing to seek the Lord and do His will. Patiently expecting Him to move, but I'm not waiting for Him to move before I do what He's told me to do. I'm doing what he's told me to do right now. Are you with me? So in other words, patience isn't passive. It looks more like perseverance or persistence than standing around waiting. A farmer knows this. A master gardener knows this. We talked about that last time. And think about what this means. If, if Paul's saying, listen, I want you to be patient with, with hard-hearted, stubborn people, ignorant people, wayward people, people who don't get it, people who learn slow, people who learn fast, people who don't even want to learn. I want you, Timothy, to continue to dispense truth and invest in people with complete patience. Continue to invest and pour into people, the ones who want to get it, the ones who are slow to get it, the ones who don't even want to get it. What does this tell us? Yeah, I guess that does sound like a tough job, but what I was thinking is this tells us how valuable people are. I, I personally don't like the standardized tests that show a child's giftedness and potential. I took the tests that say what you're going to potentially be good, good careers for you, and all they did was fill me with despair and depression. I, I couldn't, according to those tests, I'm, I'm nothing. I'm basically unhirable. <laughs> a lot of us don't fit the standard systems of of gauging potential, which they give you when you're a little kid nowadays in the West, in the Western educational system, we evaluate the metrics of your learning, your, your spatial, your mathematical, your, your data recall, and we, we assign you a number, and that's your potential. Wow. No. No, not in the kingdom. Not the way, it's not how God views the value and potential of people. 
this, this call for great patience means he must really value people far more than many of us do as individuals. There's people you and I might be tempted to give up on that God's not giving up on. There's people you and I might be tempted to overlook that he's not overlooking. There's people we might be not ready to trust with much responsibility that he's ready to give another shot. And there's people that he's willing to give responsibility to and let them make mistakes that we would immediately want to fire them from that because they made mistakes. How people respond to slow learners like me and you (laughs) says a lot about what we believe about the value of the person, the potential of the person to get it. Jesus called disciples that he, he knew very well. It says Jesus understood what was in every single person. Jesus knew that Peter, who stood there saying, I'll never betray you. I'll never deny you, ever. And they all said the same. What did, what did Peter say? I'm ready to die with you. And they all said the same. Less than 24 hours later, they had all fled. But it didn't change Jesus. He still ate that communion supper with them. He still laid his life down and died for them. And then post-resurrection, bearing his own scars, he showed up again. He made them breakfast and he restored Peter and said, okay, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my lambs. Do you love me? This changes nothing. I saw this from the beginning. You think I don't know what's in you? You think I don't know your your capacities? You don't know your capacities, but I do know your capacities. He knows my sin, he knows my weakness, and he knows my potential. We sing it in here, not this morning, but we sing it in here. The one who knows me best is the one who loves me most. You have way more potential than you know, but he does know. You have way more potential for sin than you know, but he does know. None of that changes him. He's committed to seeing you become the person he created you to be in the beginning. And though we've each gone astray, he's committed. He is patient. So he's not deceived and he's not foolish. Love's not blind, contrary to some sort of weird popular opinion. Love is blind. No, it isn't. He sees it all. What we mean is, he's, okay, love still loves even though there's stuff wrong. But what if, what if he doesn't overlook that stuff? What if he sees the value that's bigger than the flaws? It's not blind. He sees truth that's there that I don't see. Are you understanding what I'm talking about? Sometimes we're really worldly in our estimation of, of people, including ourselves, And that, what that does is that erodes our, our patience. It erodes our willingness to invest in people. And sometimes we know the cost of real love would be to rebuke. And we don't want to deal with the conflict of really taking responsibility for my Metron. We don't want to be that guy who steps in and says, brother, be above reproach, and is told, wow, <laughs> that was a cat hissing. You know, why bring pain into your life by loving people? 
Make sense? I'm not saying love is pain, but love involves a lot of caring. Caring about people, people who will hurt you, people who will continue oftentimes to make bad decisions and hurt them. And if you care about them, them hurting themselves hurts you too. Yep. I'm done. That's enough for today.